All right. Good morning, church. Good to have you all here. My name is Jerry, one of the pastors here at Northwest Community Church. It's uh, my joy to open God's Word um, with you here this morning. I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to the book of Luke, chapter 3. The book of Luke, chapter 3. Well, the summertime is almost here. How many of you young lads and lassies are done with school already? Raise your hand up really high. All right, how many are done this week? All right, lots more of you. Good. Summer is almost here. Vacations are going to be starting. Uh, But I'm here to tell you at Northwest, we are not slowing down. We're going to be trucking ahead with our Thread series uh, that we've been involved with since October of this year. And if you are visiting with us, um, you need to know that this is a series we started to give our people the grand story of God, starting all the way in Genesis and going until Revelation. And we've got several more weeks to go, but this week is pretty pivotal because we've talked about the Old Testament and we ended last week talking about the prophets and this time of uh, silence that was coming here. And today we are talking about the New Testament. And uh, we're going to be talking about a guy by the name of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. So I don't know what you think of when you hear John the Baptist. I don't know if maybe if you didn't grow up in church or around church and you're just wondering if this was the guy who started the Baptist denomination You know, 2,000 years ago, John, and he just decided he was going to, you know, start a new uh, offshoot of Christianity, which hadn't even really started yet, because Jesus wasn't on the scene yet. But uh, but I I wonder what you think of when you think of the word Baptist. The Southern Baptist Convention did a little uh, Twitter poll, um, polled about 10,000 people, and said, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Baptist? So this is a little infographic of what came up. Okay, so a few things I want to point out. Notice that nice big one front and center, legalism. And there's a whole lot of pretty negative ones up there as well. You've got, you know, stuff like don't, old, fundamentalism, fundamentalists, legalists, irrelevant. Notice this one down here. Boy, I don't know what's going on right here. Can you read that one? That says banjos. I mean, it is kind of small, so maybe there's like five people that thought banjos. But you know what one is a little bit more prominent? Look up towards the top. Do you see that one? Fried chicken. Fried chicken. So apparently across this great land of ours, when people think of Baptists, they think of fried chicken. Um, And you know what's really sad? Look right above fried. Can you see that? It says Baptist. So some people didn't quite get the concept, I don't think, of what the survey was. What's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of Baptist? Uh, Baptist? But anyway, I bring all this up to you that unfortunately there's some pretty negative things up there, front and center, right? And I am by no means here to bash Baptists. I grew up in a Baptist church and I went to a Baptist college and a Baptist seminary. And uh, my theological beliefs line up with what traditional Baptist theology is. Um, But I just bring this up to you because different people have different responses and there can be some confusion about John the Baptist. Maybe you think of, you know, something more like this picture when you think of John the Baptist. 
Just some older looking guy, he's got a tie on, you know, and a nice suit, holding up the Bible, uh, and he's named John, and he's a Baptist, but this is actually a guy named John. Anybody recognize who this picture is? Nobody, or at least you're not very vocal. Uh, a guy named John Piper, and he is an author and a theologian, an incredible man, and he's a pastor of uh, a church, a Baptist church in uh, Minneapolis. So this is John the Baptist, right here. And maybe somebody is here in the audience today who is a Baptist and your name is John. Uh, you're welcome. We're going to be talking about John the Baptist. But obviously, none of this, right? We're talking about the guy in Scripture named John. And it is vitally important in our thread series that this morning happen. Because uh, where we pick up the grand story of God is there's been essentially 400 years of silence from heaven there was still scripture there were still priests there were still people who were loving God and following after him although a lot were not but people were waiting we've told you before that the number one prayer recorded in scripture over and over and over again is four words and it's how long O Lord you see that all throughout the Psalms, and you see it in the prophets, and you see the people of God, and they're waiting for their redemption, and they're saying, how long, O Lord, please come to us, save us, rescue us now. And where we are here in Luke chapter 3 is the beginning of something great and something incredible, and it centers around a man named John. I've done, as a pastor, a fair amount of weddings in my day, probably 30 or 40 Maybe even more than that. I lose track uh, after a while. But I've noticed something pretty unique when you're officiating a wedding. You're there at the rehearsal dinner, and at the rehearsal, when they go over, here's how everything is going to go. And there's a lot of weddings that just about all of them are mostly the same, right? The beginning, you know, you're there with the groom, and you're off in some side little weird room together until your signal is kind of appear. And so I come out with the groom, and I'm standing there, and we know the formula. It's pretty similar, right? The prelude music is playing, uh, Pachelbel's Canon or something like that, right? The prelude music, and down comes the processional, you know? Starts with the grandparents being seated and the parents being seated, and then the bridal party comes down, you know, and it's all the, it's all the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and they all like go to their respective sides and whatever, and then the little kids come, you know, the ring bearer and the flower girl, and they don't really know what they're doing, or they're not doing the flowers, and it's funny, and everybody laughs, or they won't cooperate, and the mom steps in, and you know... All that happens, that's all pretty textbook, right? But then something changes in the mood of everything. Because once everybody's in place, there's a signal that happens. And not in every single wedding, but in the vast majority of them that I've done, there is something that is the signaler that stuff is ready to begin. Certainly the music is part of that, several weddings that's part of it, but man, in, in a lot of ones that I've done, even after the music plays, you don't just stand up right away, right? The ones that I've been to, it is the mother of the bride and the mother of the groom that signal it's time to stand up. You know what I'm talking about? They just kind of look at each other. Right? And then everybody stands. That's kind of the signal. Don't be that person sitting halfway back, standing up early with your camera phone, ready to get it. You've got to wait until they stand up. Now we know something is happening. 
And it's funny because when you think about that illustration, it seems a little bit silly, but when you think about the grand story of God, I'm here to tell you here this morning that John the Baptist is like the mothers of the bride and the groom. He's the one that is standing up, signaling to everybody else that something huge is about ready to happen. The thing that has taken months, even years to prepare for is about ready to be going down right now, so pay attention and don't miss it. Now, it's interesting because the whole life of Jesus, I mean, that we get this account here in the Gospels, it was only about three years, right? And how long? It had been 400 years and beyond that, thousands of years since God had been revealing himself in various ways to people. And it was all pointing to this relatively short amount of time. And in the same way for a wedding, I mean, you know, you get engaged and it starts a months and months, even a year-long process and all this time and all of this money some of your dads are like, yeah, tell me about it. Right? But then the whole thing's done in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes if there's lots of special music. Right? But that's the pinnacle. That's what it's all about. And that's what John is here to signify for us. Unbelievably important to us in the story of God. One other thing that I want to mention to you as far as preparation goes you know if you've uh, been around church for a while and you know your biblical history you'll know that John uh, had a very unique situation into which he was born his father's name was Zechariah he was a high priest his mother's name was Elizabeth they were older they were up there in age they had never had children they had always wanted children but it just didn't work out for them and an angel of the Lord came to visit Zechariah while he was ministering in the temple and said you will have a son your prayer is now answered and he had that staple response that many of the patriarchs did, which, oh, how can we? We are so old and it's just not going to work. But the angel said, oh, no, it will work. And uh, he is going to be one that is going to bring people back to God. He's going to be a great man who will turn people's hearts uh, back to God. Got that prophecy. My son's going to be a lover of God. That's incredible. And then the angel of the Lord in Matthew chapter 1 said that this son of yours will come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And it was that statement right there that changed everything. Because Zechariah was a high priest, he knew his scripture, he was there praying for the redemption of Israel, he knew in Malachi chapter 4, remember Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, last chapter of the last book, it says, in that day when God's going to come back, when everything's going to be brought to light, I will send you a prophet in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So now Zechariah is overjoyed. Wait, wait, you don't mean that this could be the one that was prophesied, do you? And then because he doubted, he lost his voice for the next few months and couldn't say anything about it. But that's exactly what God meant. And man, how amazing and how the connectivity happens when you look all throughout the story of the patriarchs and every single one of them, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all had wives that were barren, but God remembered them. And God visited and God miraculously intervened and gave them a son. And now here you've got 
the New Testament version. John's parents, the same thing. Barren, angel, visits, we're too old, that's okay, I'll make it happen. The connectivity is incredible, and it's signifying that something new is going to be in place. So two key things that we want to reference here as it pertains to John. If you're taking notes, there's just two simple things. Here in Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be for the whole time. First thing that I want you to write down is this, that he was a cultural rebel. He was a cultural rebel. Start reading in Luke chapter 3, verse 2 to get a little bit of background. Here's what it says. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we'll just stop right there and understand that John was obscure. All right, it says the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's not normal for people to live in the wilderness. All right, some of you know from Sunday school times that John had, you know, kind of a coat made of camel's hair. You know, kind of the modern day version would be a fur coat of some sort. He was fashionable even back then, apparently. And his diet consisted of honey and locusts. Locusts, disgusting, honey, maybe good a little bit, but continually might get old, right? But he was out there in the wilderness living by himself and yet preaching zealously like this rebel, like this cultural outcast about the kingdom of God, 30 years old. A couple key things we want to note. John had been, it had been commanded in scripture that wine would never touch his lips. Essentially, he was to be taking a Nazarite vow. And that's something that you see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that was a vow of separation to be used in service of God. You saw that with Samson, right? Remember, Samson wasn't allowed to cut his hair because of his Nazarite vow. Same thing with John. So obscure, uh, didn't care about possessions, didn't have any possessions that we know about, didn't have any home that we know about. He was just out there in the wilderness preaching this news about a coming king and that we're here to prepare the way for a new kingdom in a new way of life. Now I want to mention to you here that history by itself is boring. Can I get an amen to that? Anybody here? History class, you're like, eh, enough. But man, when you hear stories of people that are stirred up and sacrifice for a certain cause and even give their life for a cause. That's what's exciting. That's what makes movies riveting and compelling. And here I want to mention to you that socially, culturally, in this whole region around the Jordan River where John was out in the wilderness, the, the, the cultural temperature was one of rebellion and revolt. Revolution was in the air. The people of Israel were under tyranny from Rome. They were mistreated. They were overtaxed. And they'd been praying for so long and just waiting for somebody. And now all of a sudden there's somebody out in the wilderness. 170 years earlier, there was a man named Judas Maccabeus 
who was perhaps the most legendary warrior and hero in this Jewish history. Judas Maccabeus had a father who was a priest, and in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed and overthrown. There was a number of different groups that came in and profaned the people of God, including the Greeks who came in and set up an altar in the temple to their god, Zeus, and brought in pigs, the most detestable animal in in the mind of a Jewish person. They brought pigs into the temple and sacrificed pigs to Zeus in God's holy place. And Judas Maccabeus had a father who was a priest who loved God and these Greeks wanted to force him to sacrifice this pig to this God. And he wouldn't do it, got in a fight, ended up killing this Greek and they ran off to the wilderness and there, out in the wilderness, out in obscurity, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers said, we're going to overthrow these Greeks. We're going to win back the glory of God. They killed my father and I'm going to kill them. So he got his band of brothers together in guerrilla warfare and they went in. It's almost as if he said, stop, my name is Judas Maccabeus. You kill my father, prepare to die. Sorry about that reference, couldn't resist. But that's what he did, and they went in, and he was a warrior, and he was a champion, and he, and he uh, restored the temple, and that's where our Jewish friends get the whole holiday of Hanukkah, is all those different candles that were lit miraculously in the temple, and God was glorified again. Judas Maccabeus, Judas was such a popular, amazing name, one of Jesus' disciples had that name. You don't find that anymore, though, do you? But the point is, in this, when Jesus was born, this time frame, with this person crying out in the wilderness, in obscurity, saying, get ready, something's going to change, I'm paving the way for a new kingdom to come, something's going to be happening, there were many that were going out to him because this rebel reminded them of another rebel. So it's here that we see John's got an opportunity, John's got an audience, and even though culturally he was obscure, he wasn't afraid to share the truth. Here's what he says, keep on reading, down in verse 7, as all these people were coming out to him, he said this, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able even from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So once again, John is there and he's referencing Malachi chapter 4, last chapter in the Old Testament. Read that later on today if you have time. But it again references this idea about trees and being cut and just stumps and these were the people of God, but because they disowned him in their hearts and were focusing on the external and their hearts were not fully God's, they were removed from God's people. 
And God even said, hey, you know what? You think that you're Jewish now just because of your heritage? He says God's going to raise up other people, even from these stones. He can, out of vanishing thin air, that doesn't mean anything anymore. What's also curious is here was John, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And what you need to know is that baptism didn't start with Jesus. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about, man, what did, what did John's baptism even look like? You know, he didn't say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus wasn't even on the scene yet. John's baptism was one that was done by the high priests and, and the officials of the nation of Israel that was for Gentiles. People apart from God who said, you know what? We believe in your God. We want to be a part of your people. They would come. They would confess their sins. They would be baptized. And they would now be a part of the people of God. So I say all that to say that John was saying to the Jewish people, you need to be baptized into the true people of God. Because the way you've been acting and the way your hearts are and the way your actions are are not enough to be in God's favor. There is a new era coming. Listen to this little tidbit. Last piece of history, I promise. He was there in the Jordan River, baptizing them in the Jordan River. That is also unbelievably significant. Here's why. When you think about Moses and he parted the Red Sea with the people of Israel who passed through it. And they were there in the wilderness and then there was a change of leadership, right? And Joshua stepped up and it was Joshua who passed through miraculously the, wall, the walls of water being set up like this and the, and the waters were parted and it was Joshua who led the people through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Now listen, it wasn't all of the people of Israel, right? It was the remnants, the people that believed. It wasn't the ones that were in the wilderness that doubted God. It was the one who believed that were brought through into the promised land through the Jordan River. And later on, there was Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2 with Elisha, and he threw his cloak down, and the Jordan River parted once again, and they walked through. So you've got Joshua, and you've got Elijah, and now you've got John the Baptist. Saying in the same way, this is not just for everybody. This is for a remnant who choose to believe and confess their sins. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to baptize you. I'm going to bring you through this Jordan River, and you're going to now be a part of the people of God. Absolutely fascinating. The second point that we want to make here about John the Baptist is not just that he was a cultural rebel and speaking the truth and obscure out in the wilderness, but something way different than that. Number two, he lived his whole life to elevate another person. He lived his life to elevate another. Now, if there's anything that goes against our culture and the, the music that we listen to and the media and everything else, it's that concept right there. That I'm going to spend my days pointing to somebody else instead of allowing myself to point to myself and, and selfishly getting everything I can, right? Even our contemporary culture speaks volumes to that, right? It's just me, myself, and I, solo ride until I die, 
Because I've got me for life. Woohoo! Popular song on the radio. Don't condone it, but it's there. That whole idea, right? John's like, nope, I'm living for someone else. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not ashamed at that. Skip down to verse 15. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's saying, you know what? I'm not the big deal. Things are going pretty well for me right now. Lots of people are coming out. I've got a big audience. I've got disciples. I've got lots of people coming to listen. But you know what? I want to say that I am not the Christ. I am not a prophet. I am not Elijah. But I'm preparing the way for somebody far greater than me. And I love the reference that he says, one whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie and take off. And picture then what Jesus did later on, right? Where he had all the disciples around the table and he was the one that got down on his knees and served them by removing their shoes and washing their feet. But John said, I'm going to live my whole life pointing to somebody else. Key verse that we want you to walk out of here with is John chapter 3 verse 30 that says this he must increase and i must decrease so what does this mean for all of us how do we connect with this we talk about the grand story and the upper story of god's sovereignty here we are at the wedding okay something big's going down we've been looking forward to this it's taken a long time we're in the lower story of scripture the narrative john the baptist on the scene preparing the way for jesus and then we've got our story how do we connect with this what do we learn from this what does all this really even mean to us well i want to submit to you that it means a couple of things just as john said he must increase and I must decrease. That can happen in two ways. Number one, that can happen when the times are good. And for John right now, the times were good. People were coming out. People were listening. Jesus actually came out and said, I want to be baptized by you, John. And John did that. And Jesus then was an example for all of us. John was privy to this incredible scene for the very first time in the New Testament when the entire Trinity was seen Right? It says the heavens opened up and God the Father was speaking. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And it says the Holy Spirit came down like a dove on Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one incredible scene of initiation and public ministry to begin. When times are good, at some level, it's easy to give glory to God. I want to use a modern example of something that maybe for some of us we'll be even watching later on tonight, right? I recognize this guy's face. Yeah, that's our man Steph, right? Steph Curry, Golden State Warriors, outspoken believer after just about every three-point shot, taps his heart, points to the sky, is outspoken saying, I want to give glory to God for everything good that happened. 
But at some levels, right, he's won the MVP now in two years, and his team's in the championship game again. He's at the spotlight. He's arguably, uh, you know, the best player in the NBA, at least certainly one of the best players in the NBA, and he gives glory to God. Here's what he says. Being a Christian athlete doesn't mean praying for your team to win. Winning, who cares? He said, God doesn't give an edge to those who pray over those who don't. Hard work does that. Being a Christian athlete means competing for Christ in a way in which you always give your all for him, win or lose. You thank him for the ability and the opportunity to play. It means giving all the glory to God, no matter what the outcome. And at some levels, man, when you're increased like he's increased, it's easy to say, okay, well, I must decrease and God must increase because I've got a way to go down. I mean, I'm up here now. And I want God to be up here, so I'll just, yep, give God all the glory. I want to decrease so that God can increase. But what about the opposite of that? What about when things are already bad? Because this is a lesson from the story of John. In Matthew chapter 11, we get an account of John. And basically, this is not real long after what we're talking about here. But all of a sudden, Jesus is there, and he's in a town, and he's doing his thing. And some of John's disciples come up to him. Oh, uh, Jesus, we're here to represent John, and John's in prison, by the way. And John's got a question for you. And John's question is this. Are you the Christ, or should we expect somebody else? I want you to feel the weight and the gravity of that question for a minute. I want you to think about that flashback of those first 30 years of his life, the way John was born. Parents promising, man, you're going to be the one. You're going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You're going to be the forerunner. You're going to usher in. You're going to be the signaler that everybody's going to be ready for, this grand savior, this Messiah to come in and rescue the people. And now things didn't go as planned. And John got arrested very shortly after this baptism experience, and he'd been spending time in prison, probably headed for death, and he says, this is not the way I planned it. Jesus, are you even the Christ, or should we expect somebody else? Because you're not doing a whole lot right now. I love the honesty that Scripture carries on in this, right? But John was doubting. John was wondering. John was discouraged. And when you think about the intrinsic connection between John the Baptist and Elijah, another scene comes to mind. You remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? where he was there with the 450 prophets of Baal, and he had this big competition with them. You call out to your God, I'll call out to my God. Let's go ahead and pour a bunch of water on the, on the big altar. Whoever's God can light them on fire. That's the real God in front of the whole nation of Israel. And King Ahab, the king at the time, was there, and everybody was there. And you know the story. If you've been around church for a while, uh, Elijah called out to God, this giant flame came down, licked up everything. Elijah, so full of power, went and chased down all the prophets of Baal. Huge victory for God that day. Right? King Ahab was right there, the one in charge of the country, seeing the whole thing. 
And then on top of it, there was a huge famine and Elijah called out to God, now's the time, bring your rain. They've seen your power. Now show them this miracle. Surely they will believe and turn back to you. And sure enough, they looked out in the distance. This giant rain cloud was coming. So it says uh, the spirit of God came upon Elijah. It says he took his cloak and he tucked it up into his belt and he just booked it and started running. And he ran all the way to Jezreel which was the home town of where all the armies were and where um, Jezebel was. And he ran, it says, in front of or ahead of all the chariots of King Ahab that was also going in that direction to get there before the storm did. Now listen. There's one very key commentator that said, man, you know what? The way things are worded, maybe it's not, oh, he was so fast and he beat the chariots. Maybe it's that he was part of the procession. It says he ran in front of these chariots almost like the, 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 uh, the way many of these military uh, victories happened when they came back into their hometown. They had forerunners running in front, announcing, proclaiming, we have won, this is great, this is beautiful, running in front of the chariot back to the hometown so that everybody would be ready. And what if that was Elijah's thought? What if now surely the nation of Israel will turn back? King Ahab has seen the whole thing. He's seen how God's greater than Baal. He's seen that now this thundercloud is coming. The famine's going to be over. Surely the people are going to believe. So he's running perhaps with the chariots right in front, announcing it, excited. And then you know, probably if you've been around church, what happens. Jezebel is there. Oh, great. I'm sorry you did that to all my prophets. And great rain is coming, but you know what? We still don't believe. And we're not changing anything. And by the way, now I'm going to kill you the same way you killed those prophets. But I want you to think about that because it was at that moment that Elijah, who was the forerunner and the type of John the Baptist, so similar in so many ways, it was at that point that Elijah ran off into where? The wilderness where he was all alone in front of God. And he said, God, you know what? Please just take my life now. I'm not worth anything. I can't do anything. I've given you my all. And I thought surely this was the moment where people were going to turn, but they didn't. God, just take me now. I'm ready to go. I don't want to speak anymore. I don't want to talk anymore. I don't want to share your word anymore. I thought I've seen you work in power, but it's just not panning out. And so I wonder then in Matthew chapter 11 if that's the same way John felt. I've given my all for you. I've spoken the truth to you. I baptize you and nothing's changing. Are you really the Messiah? Or should I look for somebody else? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody here that's feeling that this morning. You talk about God increasing and us decreasing, but man, I'm all the way down here already. I don't know that I could decrease anymore because I'm so frustrated, I'm so discouraged. I'm here to tell you this morning a lesson from John is that even in what would seem like the worst of circumstances, God can be elevated. We showed you a picture earlier, early on of John the Baptist that is John Piper, the pastor of a Baptist church, and 
Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he was recently diagnosed with cancer. John Piper is a guy who constantly is talking about the glory of God and how he must increase and how we must decrease. And here's what John's response was when diagnosed with cancer. He said, this news has, of course, been good for me. The most dangerous thing in the world is the sin of self-reliance and the stupor of worldliness. This news of cancer has wonderfully blasting effect on both my wife and I. I thank God for that. He says, the times with Christ in these days have been unusually sweet. So you look back to John the Baptist and you see that he didn't give up, he didn't cash it in. He didn't say, oh, by the way, I don't believe anymore, set me free now. He stayed faithful and guess what? He did die. If you know the story, he was cruelly executed by having his head chopped off and put on a platter and paraded around in mockery. So he gave his all, he sacrificed his all. Even when he was low, he, he, he was steadfast. And the thought came to me this week, I didn't read this anywhere, I didn't hear this anywhere, but just in interacting with the text and really thinking it through, this thought came to me. You know what's interesting is John the Baptist is very unique for another reason. Everybody else, all the followers, all the other disciples, as far as we can tell in Scripture, you know, when Jesus left them, he said, oh, by the way, I'm going up to heaven. See ya, I'm checking out. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I can't wait to have you up there, and I'm gonna, we're going to celebrate. I'm going to be waiting for you. I'm going to be welcoming you. I can't wait to see ya. Okay, see you, bye. And all the other disciples, when they died one by one, and they did, they went up and they saw Jesus and they embraced him. But what's so unique about John the Baptist is he was the only one that was a follower of Jesus and died before Christ did. And John the Baptist was perhaps the only one who was in heaven looking down and seeing all this happen. And when Jesus finally returned, John was the one to welcome him. I mean, how cool is that thought? The one that was the forerunner going before also went before up to the heavenly realms to welcome Jesus back. And thank you for giving me the strength to stay strong, even though I was just, just depressed and discouraged and disillusioned. You gave me the strength even when I was down here, decreased to still elevate you. The final thought that I've just been praying over our church as we were going over this message of John is this, man, he was, he was somebody that wasn't concerned with possessions and he knew his position. He was obscure, he was a rebel, he didn't care about stuff, and he was also one that spent his entire life pointing to Jesus. Don't care about possessions. Don't care about position. I know mine. Man, what if we as a church adapted that same attitude? What if we as individuals adapted that same attitude? I'm going to hold on so loosely to all this stuff that God's given me and thank you for it, but I'm going to share it and I'm going to look to glorify you with it, but I'm also going to look to glorify you when things are going good and when things are going bad.
God, give us the strength to do that. Father, I thank you for this story, this true story of this incredibly important player in your grand story. I thank you, God, that he ushered you in. And Father, as we step out from this place, I pray that we would also be forerunners, that we would be sharing the good news, that we would be warning people and exhorting people. And God, when people see how loosely we hold on to our possessions and how we often will step down from our position to elevate you in every circumstance, God, that you would be glorified. We love you, God. Thank you for your saving power. Thank you for Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray.